0: Hands up, who is sick to death of our middling politicians rubbing their spotty hands together as they try to convince us of how stupid we are. Well, let's take a break from their heavy breathing and remember a more exquisite time when our leaders were men of action. How about the story of an ex-president taking his life into his own hands to try and chart one of the most dangerous rivers on earth? I'm talking about the harrowing story of Theodore Teddy Roosevelt's exploration of the River of Doubt in South America. This story poses a stark, sobering contrast to our current cabal of leaders, presenting an ennobling biographical portrait of the later stages of his life, and an incredible adventure narrative that most people could not believe he undertook and survived. Most of the source material for this story comes from the book The River of Doubt by Candice Millard. What I'm doing here is making notes based on this great book to give the reader slash listener the guts of the story, the takeaways, maybe a wry anecdote or two in a punchy format that enables that time-poor single father with six children to three different women the ability to say, yes, I know that book. Let me tell you what it's about. Wasn't that Teddy Roosevelt something, eh? But why this book? So why should you care about a dead president? from who you've probably heard mixed reviews. Well, this dead president was something else. This book has action, adventure, men banding together, charting unknown waters into the deepest, darkest parts of the Amazon jungle, and all undertaken during the later years of Theodore Roosevelt's life. Not when he is young and reckless, but when he is old and reckless. After already being the president of the United States twice, He's a man from a different time and it is a fascinating story, beautifully told by Millard. Descriptions of the Amazon are worth the price of admission alone, but on top of this it reads like an action thriller. If you like this humble sketch, then please go get the book. You've found the Self as Lab podcast. My name is David Hart. Opening scene. Roosevelt is on the brink of dying in the spring of 1914. Lost down a deep, dark river in the middle of the Amazon, hobbled by disease and near starvation. The unmistakable approach of death hung like a stench over his feverish body. The man himself was already a giant before undertaking this adventure. He was the President of the United States twice, he would start and finish a book or two every day, and wrote something in the order of 35 books and 150,000 letters during his lifetime. Far from this stately world he lay in his tent, slipping in and out of delirium, only 18 months after his failed campaign for a third term in office. He'd always been an advocate for the strenuous life, testing his physical limits regularly to deal with the darker times in his life. After his bitter defeat, he threw himself into the hardest trial that nature could muster to purge himself of his disappointment and his deep sense of betrayal by his own class. At this point, the expedition was on the brink of disaster. They'd lost five of their seven canoes, and one man had perished. Most of their provisions had been lost to the snaking darkness that was the River of Doubt, and they had no idea how much longer it would take them to find out where this river would end. How on earth... Did they get here? Breaking away. Defeat, a gunshot wound to the chest. Halloween, 1912. Madison Square Garden. 100,000 people swarming the sidewalk. It was the last major rally for the Progressive Party before the election. Their star candidate, Teddy Roosevelt, was running with the newly formed third party, rather than running with the old dog Republicans that he'd won his first two terms with. Roosevelt had a huge personality and was almost impossible to resist. People who knew him likened him to a force of nature. His right arm hung motionless due to being shot in the chest only weeks before. At the time he was shot, he was wearing a heavy coat and had folded his 50-page speech in his front pocket, along with his steel glasses case. The bullet had smashed into his front pocket and lodged in his skin near his ribcage. Despite the bleeding from the wound, he was still able to deliver the speech to an awestruck audience. When he took the stage at the garden, the standing ovation and wild cheering rang on for a full 41 minutes. It was an inspiring call to greatness. Unfortunately, this was to be his last great campaign speech of his political career, He went on to lose the election, becoming reviled and ignored by his friends and colleagues. He was turned against by his own class because they blamed him for effectively splitting the vote between the Republicans and the Progressive Party and handing the White House to the Democrats. In his own words, They have a way of erecting a triumphal arc, and after the conquering hero has passed beneath it, he may expect to receive a shower of bricks on his back at any moment. The loss and disappointment of the defeat was shattering, and anyone close to him knew what was to come next. Whether it had been the early experiences of life-threatening asthma attacks and his father's death, or the later experiences of his mother and wife both dying one terrible Valentine's Day, they knew what Teddy would set out to do. He would break away from society and seek solace in physical exertion and the wild of the world. Opportunity. The call to adventure. His opportunity would present itself three months after the defeat, when in February of 1913 he was invited to deliver a series of lectures in Argentina. He needed the money and he needed to get away. A perfect opportunity. In addition to this, his son Kermit had been working in South America for a year. Gifted and athletic, Kermit had previously joined his father on a year-long hunting trip in Africa. Now if these weren't enough reasons alone, His old buddy Father Zahm from the University of Notre Dame had been urging him for years to come down and be part of an exploration trip. The idea of venturing into the jungles of the Amazon was madness for an American in 1913. It was a blank, unexplored spot in South America the size of Germany. But this was the lure for Roosevelt, a huge unknown quantity that spoke to the explorer and the naturalist in him. Once Zahm had convinced Roosevelt of the trip's merits, Teddy promptly left all the planning to the elderly priest, who kicked off the planning in an ominous fashion. Zahm had fallen in love with South America, but realistically had no idea what would be required for the type of journey he wanted to undertake. Out of the gates, he selected Anthony Fiala to plan and provision the endeavour. This man was responsible for a disastrous trip to the Arctic in which they failed to reach the North Pole and lost nearly all provisions under his leadership. So under Fiala, the provisioning began. A huge variety of items were procured, many completely unnecessary for such a journey. Crates and crates of luxury provisions were purchased. There were arguments amongst the growing crew as to what type of boats would be needed for such a journey, with no one really confident they knew what they'd encounter. Both 800-pound and 160-pound boats were procured, showing the wildly divergent opinions. The crew was stacked with various skill sets to try and ensure the ex-president's safe passage through the continent. Naturalists and doctors would be essential. Roosevelt's wife, Edith, wanted Kermit to go along on the trip to ensure Teddy was okay. Kermit was a sensitive man who suffered from recurring bouts of malaria, but also relished danger and adventure. He adored his father and would do whatever it took to live up to his lofty ideals. A change of plans. You want to go where? Hundreds of millions of years ago, the South American continent was part of Pangaea, which covered half the earth. During the Triassic period, it split into Laurasia and Gondwana land. 90 million years ago, the landmass split into Africa, Australia, Antarctic, South America, and Peninsula, India. The landmass then went on to crash into the Nazca plate, creating the Andes Mountains. These mountains changed the weather climate drastically, and for millions of years, the Amazon River was a vast inland sea. 1.6 million years ago, the inland sea broke through the eastern escarpment and drained into the Atlantic Ocean, creating the world's greatest river system. In 1913, most of the inland was mysterious and uncharted. A route was drawn up for the expedition consisting of five of the best known rivers. It was determined the journey would be hard but manageable, and designed to try and ensure Teddy was returned to America with a pulse. Colonel Candido Rondon was to join as a guide, having been organised by the Ambassador of Brazil. He had spent most of his life charting the continent and would be invaluable on the journey. As Roosevelt brooded on the trip, it became clear that he wanted a journey that would have greater potential for scientific discovery and historical significance than the relatively benign journey laid before him. While pondering these thoughts, it was suggested to him by Brazil's Minister of Foreign Affairs that perhaps he should go down an unknown river. The river he had in mind? Rio da Duvida, the River of Doubt. Colonel Candido Rondon had stumbled across the River of Doubt five years previously and named it so. It coursed through a dense section of jungle that had a history of destroying any people mad enough to try and chart it. With the seed planted, Roosevelt blinked and changed the plan. Everyone was shocked at the decision to now explore the River of Doubt. It was exponentially more dangerous than the planned journey. For Roosevelt, it was his chance to become a true explorer and he fully acknowledged that he'd lived a full life and was willing to, in his words, leave my bones in South America, if required to do so. Into the Wild beyond the frontier. What is wrong with the damn mules? After two months of official duties, Roosevelt was finally ready to start the expedition. To get to the River of Doubt, there would be two months of travel by boat and then mule back just to reach it. The only people to ever have seen the River of Doubt and survived to tell the story were men led by Rondon. Rondon was determined to protect the native Indians and incorporate them into modern society. He was a member of the positivist movement, a man dedicated to science. He was chosen to lead the Strategic Telegraph Commission, soon to be known as the Rondon Commission, through long treks through unexplored territory. His men were subjected to disease, starvation and Indian attacks. Most would desert, become hospitalized or die. All would be infected by parasitic insects crawling under their skin, returning from expeditions in only rags. Roosevelt immensely respected the experience Rondon brought to the expedition. Both men had great respect for each other from the outset. The size of the expedition had swelled to 110 mules and 70 pack oxen. As they were packing the animals it was found a bunch of them were not even broken in and were still very much wild, bucking and sending packs in every direction. By the time they were finally on their way, the condition of the mules and oxen had deteriorated significantly. As they travelled, they were dying of thirst as they traversed the desert, only to be followed by flooding rains, causing mud and slick hazards for the animals. Packs were being bucked off and discarded by their pack oxen. Several of the Brazilians in the crew resigned their post, and a native by the name of Julio de Lima attacked another Brazilian on the expedition with a knife. Remember this ratbag's name because he will play a significant role later in the story. Very quickly it became apparent that not everyone would be able to complete the journey and cuts to the team had to be made. To Zahm's horror, he was one of the first to be cut, along with Fiala. Roosevelt's son Kermit was suffering from a new bout of malaria and had developed sores on his legs so bad that he had to ride some days standing in the stirrups. They were being tormented by gnats, flies and eyelicker bees. The torrential rain continued and the mules were falling and not getting back up. They were yet to meet the river. Warnings from the dead The cuts made were still not enough. Oxen were collapsing and mules were dying at an alarming rate. They needed to start gambling on what provisions they would need later on. They dumped the specimens they'd collected in the name of science. They dumped most of the collecting equipment. They cut personal luggage in half. At this point, they also started to consider attacks from the Nambuquaras. Rondon had previously withstood an attack from these Indians without retaliation. His men were terrorised for weeks, but he'd eventually won them over, and now a shaky treaty was in place. Rondon had a fierce injunction in place against any violence directed towards an Indian. His slogan was, Die if you must, but never kill. This would be his most important legacy. He would rather die than surrender his ideals, and requested his men do the same. Even if you were a missionary whose apparent sole purpose was to help the Indians, the Nambuquaras were prone to hunt you down and slaughter you. As told by Levi Strauss, A Protestant mission came to settle not far from the post at Jurina. It would seem that relations soon became embittered, the natives having been dissatisfied with the gifts, inadequate, apparently, that the missionaries had given them in return for their help in building the house and planting the garden. A few months later, an Indian with a high temperature presented himself at the mission and was publicly given two aspirin tablets, which he swallowed. Afterwards, he bathed in the river, developed congestion of the lungs and died. As the Nambuquara are expert poisoners, they concluded that their fellow tribesmen had been murdered. They launched a retaliatory attack, during which six members of the mission were massacred, including a two-year-old child. Only one woman was found alive by a search party sent out later. For the most part, the Nambuquiris were friendly with the expedition due to Rondon's presence. They did, however, steal and eat some of the expedition's dogs, so there is that. A final ration check revealed more problems. Roosevelt and the other officers were forced to halve their rations again so that the Brazilians who would be paddling and portaging equipment would have sufficient provisions to complete the journey. It was now a race against time to discover a route out of the jungle before supplies run out. The Descent. The Unknown. What is eating me now? Rondon believed the river would empty out into the Madeira, the main tributary of the Amazon River. In anticipation of this, he'd sent a group of men to meet them there. The expectation was that the river would be 1,000 miles and choked with rapids. Roosevelt now came face to face with his months of inattention and the rapidly escalating risks. He was about to start the most difficult section of the journey and they were at the limits of their endurance already. Incredibly, they had left with more boats than they would need and now arrived at the river with none. To remedy this, they bought seven dugouts from local Indians. These were little more than hollowed out tree trunks weighing 2,500 pounds each. Difficult to carry, as would surely be required to get around the rapids, they could also easily roll if mishandled and crush a man. They were stalked by dead-eyed caimans and flesh-eating piranhas. Mosquitoes carrying all manner of hellish diseases like malaria and yellow fever. Pumes, flies that gorge themselves on blood, would descend in their hundreds to feast on the lonely expedition. Snakes, frogs, jaguars, wild pigs and Indians all lurked in the shadows of their camp and their minds. On top of this, there would be long periods of torrential rainfall, followed by intense heat, the men being steam-dried and then the rain would start again. Their clothes and boots were always wet everything rotted time was running out the americans and the crew wanted to move quickly but rondon's main purpose for going on the trip was to chart as accurately as possible the course of the river as part of his broader project to map the continent this was starting to cause considerable agitation and friction in the group as they watched their supplies dwindle further checks of the baggage had the men starting to really worry they found whole cases of gourmet condiments These were completely useless in the jungle. Fiala had expected the men to be able to catch meat and largely live off the jungle, but this proved incredibly difficult. Instead of finding a garden of abundance, they found the opposite. The Amazon is one of the fiercest evolutionary battlegrounds in the world. It is an arms race in biological form. Every inch of space was alive. A massive linked mat of fungi consumed the dead and fed the living. Other than insects, the forest seemed empty, deceiving the untrained eye to the extreme competition for resources that was playing out. Plants were trading off between water, soil and sunlight. Vines would ride up trees. Trees would shed bark to lose vines. Vines would then become air plants and abandon a base. Adaption against adaption, making food sources either deadly or near impossible to find. So now... They had 22 men to try and feed, keep clothed, and equip for a journey that was to last at least several more months. It would be difficult, and difficulty brings out the worst in man. The Brazilians outnumbered the officers of the expedition three to one. The number one unspoken concern of the officers was mutiny. river. Give me back my goddamn toes. They would not leave the river. It was their guide and their source of water. To leave it would mean certain death, but the river had its own desires to rip the crew from this mortal coil. The river of doubt was swollen and cluttered with debris and shifting whirlpools that could flip a canoe and drown a man in the blink of an eye. It became critical that they studied any ripple carefully to determine if there was a lurking danger under the surface. This resulted in painstaking progress. There were hundreds of different fish species in the water, all with particularly adaptive traits that enabled them to thrive in the jungle. The South American lungfish was able to survive when streams would dry up by burying itself in mud and breathing oxygen from the air. Some electric fish would eat nothing but the tails of other electric fish. Piranhas were one of the biggest concerns with their razor-sharp teeth, able to make short work of any man who was caught unaware in the water. Rondon had lost a toe to one. He'd also lost a friend who had fallen in the water and been picked clean except for his boots. Then there were the kandaroo the fish of nightmares. They survive solely on blood. They will swim into the gills of a fish, suck out blood and leave. They've also been known to enter the penis of a man via the urethra, fill with blood and then become so enlarged that they cannot get out. The kandaroo then dies and blocks the urethra. Obviously, this would cause a long and painful death if not remedied quickly. The only option for the poor, unfortunate soul was penectomy, penis amputation. There were even reports of them swimming up urine trails and entering the penis. However, further research led me to the conclusion that these reports were the stuff of legend, but I still really want to believe this is a thing, and I'm worried about what that says about me. But anyway... By the third day of the river, they'd come across the first set of rapids, a deadly set a mile long, with the river being crushed into a channel the width of a rifle. There was no way they'd be able to safely get the boats, provisions and men through. They would have to port the boats around the rapids, which involved using a block and tackle to get the heavy boats out of the water and then physically wrestling the boats through the jungle. It took them two and a half days just to get around the first set of rapids. A path had to be cut through the forest. Hundreds of six-foot-long poles were created to roll the boats along, bumping and sliding through the woods, as ropes were tearing apart the men's flesh, branches tearing at their clothes and skin, insects feasting relentlessly, and termites ate everything. They could only take wild guesses at to where the river would actually take them. They didn't know if they had a hundred or a thousand miles to go. More waterfalls were shortly encountered, resulting in a painful and difficult three-day portage. And then, one night, the river rose unexpectedly and they lost two of the canoes. There were now not enough boats to carry all of the supplies. Checking rations, they calculated that they'd run out of supplies with still a month to go in the journey. Things were beginning to look very grim. The men got to work cutting down a tree to begin making a new canoe. It would take four days of backbreaking labour, working day and night to complete. When complete, all 22 men were required to haul it down into the water. To make up time, they started to run rapids as they encountered them, rather than porting around them. They managed to survive a week-long series of rapids, even running 6 sets in only 4 hours to make 10 miles of progress. Their luck, however, was about to run out. The next day, after travelling down several miles of relatively calm river, they started to hear the familiar distant roar as cliffs rose on either side and the river was narrowed into a series of tight turns, limiting visibility. Despite their recent success at running the rapids, Rondon drew the line here and told the men they'd have to port around these ones. As Rondon disappeared to find a path for the boats through the jungle, Kermit defied his orders and decided to investigate an alternative path through the rapids. The rapids were stronger than Kermit had anticipated, and after the boat had been grabbed by a whirlpool and tipped, all control was lost. One of the Brazilians was drowned trying to regain control of the boat, and the boat was destroyed. They lost a boat, crucial boat building tools, 10 days of provisions, and a man's life. Cruelty. We eat humans. They paid tribute to the man who drowned by naming the waterfall that took his life after him. Coming quickly to another set of rapids, the men started to prepare for another portage. Satisfied the men were all engaged in productive work, Rondon decided to go hunting with his favourite dog Lobo. Shortly after Lobo had taken off in search of the source of a noise, Rondon heard a whimper. Staggering back to Rondon's position, Lobo had been skewered with poison-tipped arrows. Rushing back to camp, Rondon found that another canoe had been lost. A rope had broken as they were lowering it into the water. Despite losing his dog and the canoe, Rondon was more concerned about the Indians. He did not know these ones. These Indians had never seen white people before. They are now known by the modern anthropologists as the cinta Laga, which is Portuguese for wide belt, named after the large strips of bark that they would wrap around their waists as armour. The officers wouldn't have even looked like humans to the Sinta Laga. Oh, and they were also cannibals. With only four canoes left, There were no suitable trees to make new ones, and they were surrounded by hostile Indians. Most of the men had to walk, carving a path through the dense forest on the bank of the river. They were forced to cut down on baggage again to only the clothes on their back. Feet were swollen with bruises, cuts and insect bites. They would search for food as they went, feeling the effects of near starvation. The presence of Indians was felt everywhere. Rondon would leave gifts to try and appease them, but they had no idea whether this would work or result in slaughter. They managed to find more suitable trees and set to work making a new canoe. While checking provisions again, they made a sickening discovery. Boxes of rations had started disappearing. One man's name jumped to everyone's lips, Julio de Lima, the man who had attacked another Brazilian early on in the trip with a knife. He was the only one who appeared to not be suffering from the effects of starvation. While it could not be directly proved, he would no longer be trusted and watched closely. The accumulation of disease, hunger, exhaustion and fear had worn the men down. They were starting to show their worst selves. Facing more rapids, the men decided to run them. Two canoes got pinned against a group of boulders. Terrified of losing these, Roosevelt jumped in to try and help, gashing his leg on a rock. Due to the existing condition with his right leg from a trolley accident years ago, he knew this minor injury was almost certainly fatal. Infection began to bubble in the wound and he was overtaken by a raging fever. They were exposed to more torrential rain. A huge series of waterfalls, the final being 30 feet in height, stared them down. At this point, Rondon assembled the weary and frightened men and simply stated that we shall have to abandon our canoes and every man fight for himself through the forest. This was surely a death sentence if carried out. Roosevelt had always believed that no one man should jeopardise the other men on the expedition. He'd never allowed himself to fear death and was quite content to die based on the greatness of the life that he'd led. In case this situation occurred, he'd packed a lethal dose of morphine. He called to his son and another officer. I want you and Kermit to go on. You can get out. I will stop here. Despair. I will not let you die here. Kermit refused to let go his father and resolved to fight to bring him out. Their roles were now reversed. Seeing the determination in his son's eyes, Roosevelt decided to live. Despite Rondon's opinions on the rapids, Kermit was convinced he could lower the boats down through the canyons they faced. He managed to convince the crew that if they cut down their load again, shedding anything that wasn't food, they'd be able to make it. It took four days, but they succeeded. They were too exhausted and sick to celebrate. They lost one more boat during the portage. More unforgiving rain continually draining under the tent and soaking Roosevelt as he lay with his fever raging. The brutal series of rapids just reversed and the thought of many more to come was destroying their strength and hope. To try and keep their strength up, Roosevelt would give away his rations to the men. Kermit had to watch him continuously to make sure that he didn't give it all away. The men were starving and frightened. The officers were sure they were only one incident away from mutiny. While the crew were preparing to re-enter the river, Julio was caught stealing food again. He was fiercely rebuked by the leader of the Brazilians for stealing and not pulling his weight with the portage. Julio calmly grabbed a rifle and shot him dead. Both Rondon and Roosevelt were reported to be in a blind rage to kill Julio for his actions. Julio ran off into the jungle, losing his gun. They were certain he would shortly die out there. Roosevelt's condition worsened dramatically, and the doctor was reduced to injecting quinine straight into his abdomen to try and control the effects of the malaria. After another dark and wet night, his fever finally broke at sunup. The men were able to kill some monkeys and, improving their spirits significantly, managed to escape the hills as the river opened up wide and calm. Unbelievably, as they traversed the river, they found the thief and murderer, Julio DeLima. He was clinging to an outstretched tree begging to be rescued. He was ignored, and the crew kept on down the river. It was a pitiful and terrifying fate for the man. Deliverance. Just cut me and drain the wound. As they progressed down the river, they found a knife-cut vine, indicating that rubber men had operated this far upstream. This resulted in much celebration, as this simple cut was the first sign of civilization in months. A few more rapids and they started coming across some of the outposts of the men, who would harvest from the rubber trees. They knew they were close. Roosevelt could not sit up or lie down in the boat. He'd developed a potentially deadly bacterial infection. With antibiotics yet to be invented, the concern was, if left untreated, it could lead to blood poisoning and death. With no other options, Roosevelt finally agreed to let the expedition doctor operate on his leg, on a muddy bank of the river, without anaesthetic. He drained the pus and inserted a drain into the wound. They had to continually swat away the swathe of bacteria laden flies that were attracted to the wound. They started to meet some of the rubber men along the river and were offered food that they graciously accepted. Incredibly, after running a few more rapids, they came out right where Rondon had sent the relief party to meet them salvation they were back echoes of eternity roosevelt was fundamentally physically transformed by the journey and would never fully recover he was a shadow of his former self so tanned and thin following the adventure that even those closest to him had trouble recognizing him he suffered the lingering effects of the fever for the rest of his life What they had achieved was so staggering that most did not believe it at the time. They managed to chart an unknown river a thousand miles through the most difficult environments known to man. They literally put it on the map. The river would subsequently be known as the Roosevelt River, in honour of the expedition. Alright, so what have you learned by listening to this? Number one... You now know that there are fish out there that, given a chance, will swim into your penis and kill you. Number two, you know what demons lie in the heart of a starving man and that everyone is pretty happy when they eat a monkey. There could be some preconditions to this statement, not sure. They sure did seem happy. Number three, politicians used to be cut from a different cloth, willing to risk life and penis for a chance to explore the wilderness and expand man's knowledge of the world learned that antibiotics are a beautiful thing, and anaesthesia is a modern miracle. Remember that next time you get your teeth pulled. And number five, hopefully you were dispelled of any preconceptions of nature being some kind of benevolent mother. Given half a chance, literally everything will try and kill you. Number six, did I mention the penis fish? Okay, action. If you enjoyed this, go get the book. Read it and share it with your friends. Reading is like a cheat code to level up your life. Seriously, it is that powerful. You get to learn lessons that took a lifetime of hardship and suffering to uncover. If you've got any questions on this book or suggestions for any books you'd like to see notes on, hit me up on Twitter at TheDavidHart. Next up in the Self as Lab series is A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century by Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, a book that highlights our evolutionary underpinnings and the challenges posed by our modern lifestyle. To read the writing behind this podcast, subscribe on Substack. Connect with me on Twitter. If you enjoy this thing, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Thanks for listening.